Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight, we continue readings from American Big Game Hunting from the Boone and Crockett Club. The White Goat and His Country is where we're going to continue. It is the next chapter from the previous one. If you've been enjoying the readings, please leave a comment in your podcast app. And if you're enjoying the podcast and it's helping you fall asleep, please subscribe and leave a comment to say hello. In the meantime, sit back or lie back and enjoy the readings. The White Goat and His Country In a corner of what is occasionally termed our Empire of the Northwest, there lies a country of mountains and valleys where, until recently, citizens have been few. At the present time, certain minds and uncertain hopes have gathered an eccentric population and devoked some sudden towns. The name which several of these bear are tolerably sumptuous, golden, oro, and ruby, for instance, and in them dwell many colonels and judges and people who own one suit of clothes and half a name and who sleep almost anywhere. These communities are brisk and nomadic, full of goodwill and crime, and in each of them you will be likely to find a weekly newspaper and an editor who is busy writing things about the neighbouring editors. The flume slants down the hill, bearing water to the concreter. Buckets unexpectedly swing from the steep pines into mid-air. Sailing along their wire to the mill, little new staring shanties appear daily. Somebody having trouble in a saloon upsets a lamp and half the town goes to ashes. While the colonels and the hurry-up Eds carouse over the fireworks till morning. In a short while, there are more little shanties than ever, and the burnt district is forgotten. All this is going on not far from the mountain goat, 
but it is a forlorn distance from the railroad. And except for the stage line, which the recent mining towns have necessitated, my route to the goat country might have been too prolonged and uncertain to attempt. I stepped down one evening from the stage, the last public conveyance I was to see, after a journey that certainly has one good side. It is completely odious, and the breed of sportsmen that takes into camp every luxury excepting, perhaps cracked ice, will not be tempted to infest the region until civilization has smoothed its path. The path, to be sure, does not roughen until one has gone along it for 2,800 miles. You may leave New York in the afternoon and arrive very early indeed on the fifth day at Spinaki. Here the luxuries begin to lessen, and mean once-a-day train trundles you away on a branch west of Spokane at six in the morning into a landscape that wastes into a galloping consumption. Before noon, the last sick tree, the ultimate starved blade of wheat, has perished from sight, and you come to the end of all things, it would seem, domain of wretchedness unspeakable. Not even a warm, brilliant sun can galvanize the corpse of the bare, ungainly earth. The railroad goes no further. It is not surprising, and the stage arranges to leave before the train arrives. Thus, you must spend sunset and sunrise in the moribund terminal town, the inhabitants of which frequently confess that they are not staying from choice. They were floated here by a boom wave, which left them stranded. Kindly, they were, and anxious to provide the stranger with what comforts existed. Geographically, I was in the Big Ben country, a bulk of land looped in by the Columbia River, and highly advertised by railroads for the benefit of those seeking homes. Fruit and grain, no doubt, grow somewhere in it. What I saw was a desert cracked in two by a chasm 65 miles long. It rained in the night, and at seven next morning, bound for Port Columbia, we wallowed northward 
out of town in the sweating canvas covered stage through primeval mud. After some 18 miles, we drew out of the rain area and from around the wheels, there immediately arose and came among us a primeval dust, monstrous, shapeless, and blind. First, your power of speech deserted you. Then your eyesight went, and at length you became uncertain whether you were alive. Then hilarity at the sheer discomfort overtook me, and I was joined in it by American brother. But two drummers on the back seat could not understand, and seemed on the verge of tears. The landscape was entirely blotted out by the dust. Often, you could not see the roadside. If the road had any side, we may have been passing homes and fruit trees, but I think not. I remember wondering if getting goat after all, but they proved well worth it. Toward evening, we descended into the sullen valley of the Columbia, which rushes along, sunk below the level of the desert we had crossed. High, sterile hills flank its course, and with the sweeping, unfriendly speed of the stream, its bleak shores seemed a chilly place for home-seekers Yet I blessed the change. A sight of running water once more, even of this overbearing flood and of hills, however dreary, was exhilaration after the degraded, stingy monotony of the Big Bend. The alkali trails in Wyoming do not seem paradises till you bring your memory from them here. Nor am I alone in my estimate of this impossible hole. There is a signpost sticking up in the middle of it. The originally told traveller, it was 35 miles to Central Ferry, but now the traveller has retorted, and three different handwritings on this signpost reveal to you that you have had predecessors in your thought, comrades who shared your sorrows. We halted a moment at the town of Bridgeport, identified by one wooden store and a hotel. The rest may be seen upon blueprint maps where you would suppose Bridgeport was a teeming metropolis. At Port Columbia, which we reached by a landslide sort of road that slanted the stage over and put the twin Jew drummers in mortal fear, we slept in one of the two buildings which indicate that town.
it is another important center in blueprint, but invisible to the naked eye. In the morning, a rope ferry floated to the new stage and us travelers across the river. The Okanagan flows south from lakes and waters above the British line and joins the Columbia here. We entered its valley at once, crossed it soon by another rope ferry and keeping northward with the river to the east between us and the Colville Reservation had one good meal at noon and entering a smaller valley reached Ruby that evening. Here the stage left me to continue its way to Conconally, six miles further on. With the friends who had come to meet me, I ascended out of Ruby the next day over the abrupt hill westward and passing one night out in my blankets near a hospitable but limited cabin. Its flowing-haired host fed us, played us the fiddle, and would have had us sleep inside, arrived bag and baggage the fourth day, from the railroad at the forks of the Methow River. The next tributary of the Columbia below the Echinogon. Here was a smiling country, winning the heart at sight, and ample beauty was over everything nature had accomplished in this place. The pleasant trees and clear course of the stream, a fertile soil on the levels. The slopes of the foothills varied and gentle, unencumbered by woods, the purple cloak of forest above these on the mountains, and rising from the valley's head a crown of white, clean, frozen peaks. These are known to some as the Isabella Range and Mount Gardner, though the maps do not name them. Moreover, I heard that now I was within 25 miles of goats. The definitive ridges were pointed out as the promised land. Many things were said to me, first and last. I remember a ragged old trapper, lately come over the mountains from the Skagit River, Goats, did I say. On top, there the goats had tangled your feet walking in the trail. He had shot two in camp for staring at him. Another accurate observer had seen 300 on a hill just above early winter as he was passing by. The cabined dwellers on the methow tied their horses to the fence and talked to me. 
So I had come from the east after goats, had I, and in the store of the man at the forks, I became something of a curiosity. Day by day, I sat on the kegs of nails or lay along the counter devoted to his dry goods and heard what passed, citizens and denizens, for the swash with squaws and horses was having his autumn hunt in the valley, knocked at the door to get their mail or buy tobacco or sell horns and fur or stare for an hour and depart with a grunt. And the grave man at the forks stood behind one counter while I lay on the other acquiring a miscellaneous knowledge. One old medical gentleman had slain all wild animals without weapons and had been the personal friend of so many distinguished historical characters that we computed he was 19 about the time of Bunker Hill. They were hospitable with their information and I followed my rule of believing everything that I hear and they were also hospitable with whatever they possessed. The memory of those distant dwellers among the mountains, young and old, is a friendly one, like the others I carry, whether of wind or powder rivers or the Yellowstone or wherever western trails have led me. That concludes the readings from tonight. I hope you enjoyed them. Thank you for listening, and feel free to listen to some of the other episodes if you're still feeling a little sleepy. Good night.